0: If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter. Uh, We're going to be looking at just the opening verses of this, uh, really for the next couple of months. This is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in. Uh, 2 Peter is really toward the end of the New Testament, in case you're looking for it. Uh, But we're going to be looking there. But one of the questions that we're dealing with, we're we're talking, you're hearing this expression, this phrase a lot uh, at Midtown, uh, gospel transformation, that we are committed uh, to seeing the gospel transforming people's lives uh, and making us more and more into the image of Christ. And, and and the question that we're taking up really in this series is, how do we change? How does a person change? Have you ever thought about that? How does change happen in your life? It can be a confusing question, a really confusing question for people of all faiths, because on some level, every one of us looks at our lives and sees things that we wish were different. We see things that we feel are are, are deficient. Some of us, perhaps more than others, but, but if, let me qualify that. Some of us see more than others that we wish would change, but all of us have these things in our lives that we wish were different, and Christianity is a faith that is built on this promise that Christ means to do this, that he means to change us, that he means to transform our lives. And so the question is, why? Why is that such a central tenet of Christianity? What what is the purpose of God telling us, I'm going to transform you, I'm going to change you, I'm going to make you different than you have been? I know not everybody in this room is, is married, but I want to use an illustration from marriage that I, that I think applies to this, uh, to this discussion. My wife and I, this past week, were able to go on a, a four-day trip to New York City. Uh, we spent the time in Manhattan uh, the whole time that we were there. It was, it was amazing. It was the 16th anniversary uh, trip You know the reason we went was to celebrate our 16th anniversary. I have four kids, my wife and I have four kids and uh, they stayed home with with Grammy uh, while Lisa and I had this this time in the greatest city in the world. Uh, if you've ever been to New York City, it is an amazing electrifying Place that is just, I remember walking around and hearing all the accents and and all the languages that are being spoken on the streets and all the food that is uh, the food in New York City. Oh my word. I'm telling you, they have they have food carts that are better than almost anything I've ever eaten in my life, you know? Just just a, a guy pushing a buggy. Here you go. Here's a little foretaste of heaven. Um But we did amazing things. We went to a Broadway play. We saw that Spider-Man play, you know, which I think is a little bit like a cross between a a Broadway musical and a NASCAR race because you get the singing and the acting and the production, but you also have the chance that there might be a crash, you know, because they're swinging around and flying all over. No crash, though. Um, but we, you know, we did that. We went to some museums. We went to the, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I love art museums. And this is probably one of the top five in the world uh, art museums. Uh, I stood in a room uh, just just a week ago uh, in, in the presence of, five days ago, wow, in, in the presence of about 20 Rembrandts. And Rembrandt rings my bell. I I just, I love Rembrandt. Um, Van Gogh. It it was really just an incredible time, hanging around with with friends that we hadn't seen in years. Also, we were there in Manhattan at Ground Zero on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. So we picked a a very unique week in history to be in Manhattan. We couldn't get within a couple blocks of of where the towers had stood because of the police and the barricades, and you had to have passes and stuff to get in. But as we walked through those streets of of, of lower Manhattan, they had these sound systems set up everywhere where they're playing in the streets, echoing through these these, uh, streets that are just lined with these skyscrapers, these names of people who died 10 years ago that day. And so that was an experience we had of walking through Manhattan and hearing the names of people who died at 9-11 echoing through the streets of Manhattan. It was powerful. The question comes up then, Lisa asked me this question, people have asked me this question, have asked myself this question, what was my favorite part? What was my favorite part of being in New York City for four days with my wife? And the answer is, that I've arrived at, and, I, and I'm not giving you this answer as a boast, but as, as more of a confession, that my favorite part was being with her. My favorite part was, I had four uninterrupted days of renewing my marriage covenant with my wife in this amazing city. And it was, it was an incredible thing for me to think through what 16 years of marriage has done in my life. I've been at times a pretty lousy husband. I've failed my wife. I continue to fail my wife. So please understand when I, what I'm about to say is not a boast about me being a great husband. But let me just make this observation as a person who's been in a marriage for 16 years, and that is that I'm a better husband now than I used to be. There are things that I understand and I know about my wife that I didn't used to know. I know how she likes her coffee. I know how she likes her eggs. I know what kind of chocolate to get her. I know, and I remember both of us having this moment where our minds just kind of got blown of, of realizing we know much better now when a fight is over. Yeah. Penny Hoffman, ladies and gentlemen. But seriously, our first several years of marriage when we would fight, how in the world do you know when that fight is over? I mean, you just, you're, is it done yet? I don't know. There's more things we could turn over. Let's turn over those things too. And it's just, it's been a great thing the way that the Lord has, has worked through marriage to change Lisa and I, to make us people who have been really independent and autonomous, people who are, are in this face-to-face relationship. And when I committed to marrying Lisa and her to me, it wasn't that I was just taking a promise in front of people to be a good husband. But I was taking this promise to be her husband, specifically, which looks different in some ways than it does for other husbands and their wives. For me to love my wife well... I can't just go and get a book on being a husband and read it and say, okay, I know what I need to know about being a husband. Why? Because for me to be a good husband to her is a very relational exchange. It's not just there's this thing to study, being a husband, and once I've mastered that, then she is the recipient of all this wonder and awe and and beauty that is me. No, it's, it's that I love her. Face to face, I walk with life through her. The life that we live is a life that I live toward her specifically. If things wound her that don't wound other friends of mine, it should matter to me that they wound her. I should care about those things. And so it changes us. It changes us. If I hope to grow as a husband, it won't happen apart from pursuing my wife. In this face-to-face relational pursuit, and the Lord says marriage is a picture; it's an illustration. In Ephesians 5, He says marriage is an illustration of God's love for the church. That there are parallels here; that if for a marriage to be healthy, it's a face-to-face. I'm committed to you. I'm in the relationship with you. I'm not just learning life principles. I'm studying you. I'm walking with with you. Does that make sense? The Lord says this is a picture of what Christianity is. This is a picture of what it means to walk with God. The whole point of pursuing a relationship with God rests in this conviction that I was made to be known and to be loved by him, that I was made to find my deepest levels of satisfaction In life, through knowing and through loving him. In fact, the whole reason a Christian would say that they need change in their life is because we say we're born into a fractured relationship with the one that we were meant to know and enjoy and walk with forever. That there's no greater purpose in my life than to know and to love and to serve and to worship this one who made me. And so all the areas of my life that defy this, all the areas of my life that are in opposition of me saying my favorite part of this life was him, are areas of my life where the Lord says, I mean to change you there. And it's not just general change, but it's change in the relational direction of knowing and loving and walking with the Lord. So I ask you, how how do you go about making changes in your life? Are you a January 1st, turn the calendar page over and make a resolution, this is going to be a different kind of year? Boy, are we a cynical culture when it comes to that, right? Because we know... That we can, we can make resolutions to behave differently, but it doesn't mean that we change. It doesn't mean that we're really internally changing. How do you change? How do you pursue change in your life? Hard work? You shame yourself? You make resolutions? Do you put it on yourself to do this, that you are going to go away, change things, and then come back the new and improved, you know, and reveal yourself to the Lord and say, here I am. Look at all the changes that I've made. For two weeks now, we've been digging into a remarkable passage of Scripture in Second Peter where Peter is telling us something amazing about this very issue of how we change. And so I want us to, to read it. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Uh, just as a review of where we've been, and then we'll dig into the rest of it in a second. Uh, This is uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us, has granted to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us he has granted to us, past tense, his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that you may participate with the divine, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That is a powerful thing that Peter is saying. What he's saying is, look, if you're a believer, God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness, already. He has not withheld any good thing from you. He has given it to you, and He's given it to you in order that you would know Christ and in order that you would uh, revel in, enjoy, and and lean on all of His great and precious promises and that in your life that you would participate with Him in the life that He has called you to. In this face-to-face way. It's an amazing thing to say. These things he has given us, the two primary things that Peter's referring to here, he's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. The two primary things he's referring to is he's given you his word, where he reveals himself, where he he, he tells you who he is, what he desires for you, who you are, why he made you, the depth of his love. But he also gives us then his Holy Spirit who lives in us when we believe that, that, that the Spirit lives in the, in the hearts uh, in the, in, in, of the believers in Jesus Christ. This is a glorious and amazing promise that we have in Scripture that Christ has said, I'm not going to leave you alone, but I'm going to give you a comforter, my Holy Spirit, who illuminates that word that He's given us that we might understand what it is that God is saying to us. So He's given us these things, all we need for life and godliness. He's done this uh, through Christ, and He's granted to us His great impression promises. These are promises to love us, promises to keep us, to never let us go, to transform our lives by his grace. This promise that Christ has made, that God has given to his people is, is, I will not leave you alone. I am pursuing my relationship with you. I am contending for your heart. It's like that marriage illustration that it is a face-to-face Thing that the Lord is engaged in with us. He's doing this so that our lives would be lived in this face to face participation with him in the life that he has for me. If my wife and I had gone to New York City together for four days and the objective was she had 18 things she wanted to see and I had 18 things I wanted to see, we landed at Newark, we got on separate trains and met back four days later and said, wow, we had an amazing time in New York City for our anniversary. You all would think that, th- that there was something really really concerning about my relationship with my wife, right? Why would the, four, why would the two of you go to this, this four-day trip to this amazing city and not be together and not spend time together and instead use that time just to pursue things on your own? Spiritually, don't we do that? Don't we regard our relationship with the Lord in this way so often that the whole point of the Christian life is for me to go off and do things hoping that when I come back and report to the Lord, he will be pleased with the things that I've done? What Peter is saying is that's not the point. The point of the whole life of walking with the Lord and following him is he's saying, with me, with me, your eyes are on me, we're together. Our relationship is the point of this. an astounding thing to say we were meant to live our lives in step with him. And so here's the key to how our lives change. We don't change by going off to school and learning spiritual lessons and then coming back to God and showing him our progress. We change when we understand that the primary call of God on the lives of his people is a call to himself. That it's not just some standard of righteousness he's calling me to. He's calling me to himself. He's calling me to a relationship with him. And it's an intimate one. It's a relational call that we would get to the end of our days and say, my favorite part of this life was him. We've talked about faith a lot these past two weeks. One of the distinctions that we've made, which I think is just so important, it will make all the difference, in how you perceive what you're called to do and to be, is this, is that faith isn't so much a quantitative thing, as though if I have a lot of faith, I'll do better than if I just have a little bit of faith. Now let me explain that, because that may be a paradigm shift. You may say, what's wrong with that exactly? See, if you're looking at faith as, I want to have more faith than I used to have, as though the quantity of faith is, as a thing is where the power resides. We're, we're missing the point. The point then would be that, well, my faith is in my faith, that my faith for, for change to happen in me, for life to go well, for me, for me to be strong in the face of adversity, what I need is I need more faith as though that's where the power resides in faith. And that's not the case. Because Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it can move a mountain. Well, how does that work? The power of faith isn't in faith itself. The power of faith is in what the object of your faith is. What is your faith in? And for the Christian, we're saying, I believe, help me in my unbelief, but Christ, my faith is in you. My faith is in you. I believe you. It's a very relational thing. My faith isn't in faith itself. It's in Christ. He is where the power resides. And since this is so, Peter then continues in this passage and says, okay, so he's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Now he's called you to participate with the divine, to trust in him. And so he continues this verse that we're reading with this chain of things to add ...to our faith in the interest of living lives of active participation with Him. What does it mean for you to be participating with the divine? That's what verses 5 through 8 get to. And we're going to start with just the first clause, but I want to read the whole thing so you can see it. Uh, This is verses 5 through 8. For this reason, uh, the reason being that He's called us to participate with Him uh, in this life, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or goodness and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're just going to start with the first component of this gospel addition that Peter is giving us here, this, this expression, add to your faith virtue, or add to your faith goodness. What does he mean? What is he getting at here when he's saying, add to your faith goodness? I believe that in this verse, Peter's giving us more than just a list of things. I believe that he's giving us a sequence of things. This list that begins with faith and ends with love, he's saying, add to that faith these things, and I believe that he's saying add to them and, and, and think of them as having a, a bit of an order to them in, in which they come, which is important. We're saved by grace through faith alone, scripture tells us, right? We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by being awesome. We're not saved by dressing well. We're not saved by going to church. We're not saved uh, by, uh, you know, being able to say, I've never been angry, you know, or, or things like this. We're saved by grace, through faith. But as Martin Luther summarized the book of James, he said, we're saved by faith alone, but, we're never, but it's not a faith that is ever alone. I totally butchered Martin Luther. I'm sorry, Martin Luther. Let me say it again. We're saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. In other words, true faith expresses itself in a loving, Godward direction. Just like true love in my marriage expresses itself in a face-to-face, I love you, I'm committed to you, I'm walking with you, I'm studying you, I'm wanting to know you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm yours. You have me. So he's giving us this sequence of how we spiritually mature in Christ. He said, God gives us everything. That's important. He's already said that in this verse. God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. So it's not like Peter is saying, go find goodness outside of what God has provided for you and bring it into the equation. No, he's saying he's already given you all this stuff. Instead, what he's saying is participate with the Lord in these things that he has given you. You don't conjure them up yourself. But you lean into the Lord and you say, I want to put to work the fruit of the Spirit that you've put in my life. I want to engage intentionally in these things. So add to your faith, the first one is goodness. And interestingly, and perhaps upsettingly, the second is knowledge. Goodness precedes knowledge. Knowledge. What does it mean to add goodness? What does the word mean? First of all, the word goodness here is a word that Greeks loved. This word virtue. Um, It it means a, a praiseworthy, or it means being living a praiseworthy life, or or being honorable, regardless of the outcome. That life is well ordered. That we are complying with the design and the order and the structure of how God intended for us. To live, maybe a simpler way to say it is add to your faith obedience. Desire an honorable life toward the Lord. Live the life that he prescribes in his word. It's interesting to note that virtue or goodness comes before knowledge and knowledge before self-control. Because what we're seeing here is, is that Peter is saying, obey the Lord In his word, even before you understand why he's calling you to obey, that is a bit of a nuclear bomb in our culture. Obey even when your knowledge of why the command is given is lacking or incomplete. Because as the question should be rising in us, wait, isn't that where cults come from? Blind obedience to somebody who says, "Here's your sneakers and here's your Kool-Aid," right? I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but but it's you know, we think, why would anybody just blindly do that? And yet, here Peter is saying, "Add to your faith goodness, and add to your goodness knowledge, but obey even if you don't completely understand everything that the Lord is calling you to." We rebel against this. We resist this. We push against this. This idea of someone telling us to do and, and, and saying, I, I, I can't question it. I can't, I can't dig into this and say, wait, before I do that, let me understand why this is. What's the difference between God and a cult leader? It's really kind of the heart of what we need to understand. There are two things we have to take up here. The first is, what do you think about this? What do you think about obeying God? when you don't completely understand? Somebody says, well, let's just keep it in the realm of Scripture. God says, here's a command. I want you to do this, or I want you to not do this. And you don't understand why. Do you, are you beholden to that command? Do you you need to keep it? Do you need to follow? Do you need to respond? What do you think about obeying when you don't completely understand? And then the second question is, Why would God's commands be worthy of this kind of obedience? Peter presumes they are. That if God tells me to do something, He is worthy of my obedience, regardless of how well I understand why He wants me to do that. This is pretty uncomfortable, especially in our culture, But what do you think about obeying God when you don't understand? There are some, for instances, there are plenty of places in Scripture where I'm sure that your life is is really butting up against this very thing. But let me just give a few, for instances, just so we're not talking in in generalities, but specifics. Um, Human sexuality. God talks about this in His Word. He says physical intimacy, sexual intimacy is is meant to, for the context of a marriage, only anything outside of the bounds of that is not as God intended. First Corinthians seven two, Colossians three five. God prohibits sex outside of marriage. Hebrews thirteen four calls married people. Hey, look, you're married. You are are with one person. Monogamy. It says this, Hebrews 13, 4 Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I would presume that most of us in this room have been very uh, conflicted about these, this, this, this instruction that the Lord gives. That there have been times in our lives when we have thought, it would be so much easier for me right now if these commands weren't in place. And how could God really uh, mean this when I feel the things that I feel so strongly? You know, that there's this conflict in here. Money, generosity. Here's another one. First Timothy 6. Paul tells us, don't trust in wealth. It, 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 can't, it can't care for you. Wealth can't satisfy you. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, don't store up treasure on earth. Moths will come in and destroy it. It's it's not really worth anything. Or in the Old Testament, God told farmers, hey, when you harvest your crops, don't harvest your fields completely. Leave, Leave a perimeter untouched for sojourners and travelers and, and, and people who are poor and people who are hungry, just leave that. In our culture, we're like, that's leaving money on the table. I don't understand why I would have to make this sacrifice for people that I don't even know, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because this is a principle where the Lord is saying, you know, sometimes my commands for you have very little to do with you and have to do with the wellness of other people. And so I call you to things that feel like sacrifice, and the reason they feel like sacrifice is because they are. I'm calling you to live generously with your resources. It's tough because it's hard to measure whether we love money. It's hard to observe from the outside watching a person if they're greedy or not a lot of times because it's such a heart thing. And yet the Lord gives us instruction here. Don't love money. Don't put your trust in wealth. Be generous. Be generous toward people. And we have conflicts about this. Forgiveness is another one. Forgive where there is offense. Jesus teaches us to pray, "Forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors." Ephesians 4 tells us be tender-hearted and forgiving toward people who have wronged you, even as you've been forgiven by Christ. But some of us are reeling from injustices and we can't figure out how to let them go. We don't want to let them go. My airline lost my suitcase and I have to write a blog about it. It has to happen. There's an injustice that has been done or a friend has said something has cut me deep. I can't be in the same room with them anymore. It's just my my blood just boils. I'm touching on some pretty universal things here. Sex, money, forgiveness, peace with people. Uh, But there are other commands that the Lord gives us too. Submit to one another out of love and respect for each other. Or Jesus, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn and offer them the other cheek. Look, I'm not advocating blind obedience without knowledge. I'm not saying that we should be, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm not asking any more questions. Peter's not saying that either because he is saying add to your obedience knowledge. Seek to understand, but don't make knowledge a prerequisite for Obedience. How much understanding do you need in order to obey the Lord? Think about that. How much do you need to understand a command from the Lord in order to obey it? Because how you answer this question reveals a lot about what you think about God and also what you think about yourself do you struggle to obey God's commands that you don't fully understand? Or if you're being honest, is it maybe not so much that you don't understand it, it it's that you don't like the sound of it. You don't like the direction it seems to be, to be going. We live in a time where it's culturally a paramount virtue that no one can tell me what I can and can't do. I was raised in a, a school that told me that I could be anything that I wanted to be when I grew up. Many of you, same thing you can be anything that you want to be that is so not true it's just not true and it's not the problem isn't that it's not true the problem is the underlying idea behind it and that is that your life has no purpose right now it just has the purpose that you will discover as you go through things. There's a researcher who studied the long-term impact of school systems shifting to this self-esteem-based uh, uh, rule that, that we tell kids that they can do anything they want to do and be anything that they want to be. And one of the universal things that she discovered, one of the unintended consequences of this is that for the majority of our culture, we've become a culture of, a culture of narcissists who believe I am the most important thing in my world. I'm the center of it. I'm special. Everything revolves around me. I can do, I can be anything that I want to be. The universe exists to serve my dreams. And when this is the case and someone comes along telling us things to do that we either don't like or we don't understand, we reject them and we react by saying, I'm not doing anything until I not only understand it, but then I also think that it's a good idea. And when we do this with God, what we're really doing is we're saying to God, I will only follow those commands that I both understand and approve of. And when we're doing that, you know what we're doing? We're saying, you're here, and I'm here. I'm above you. Which brings us to the second issue, which we're going to close with. Why would God's commands be worthy of our obedience, even if it's obedience without complete understanding. Why would anybody in their right mind say of a command from the Lord in His Word, I don't understand it, but I will do it? Remember the marriage illustration from the beginning? This is a relational question. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, We trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists question is, who is the one that we trust and obey? Peter's already said, he's the one who's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's the one who has called us to walk with him through this life in the riches of every single one of his great and precious promises. He's the one for whom we were created, the one whose love for us is greater than the sweetest, greatest, longest, most beautiful picture of marriage that this world has ever seen. He's the one who's called us to live in active participation with his divine love love for us. The lover saying to his beloved, come to me, live with me, walk with me, you are mine. He is, as we read in Romans eight twenty eight, the one who works all things together for the good of those who love him. This is who the God is that calls us to obey even when we don't understand. He's the one who's saying to us, I love you, I know you, I know what's good for you, I know what's best for you, I see things that you don't see. Trust me, walk with me, lean into me. What would it look like for you to live in this? How would your life change? Because I recognize that for some of us in this room, we might be talking about explosive monumental change that you're going to have to wrestle with even today. You might be thinking, you have no idea how this complicates my life. I wouldn't be able to pay my bills if I didn't skim from my company the way that I do. Or I can't afford to move out of my girlfriend's apartment. can't do this. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand how life could work. It will be hard to do that. And yes, it will. I would have to make serious changes to some of the most important relationships in my life. I would have to look at some of the unhealthy patterns in some of my deepest friendships and say, I need to lay that relationship down before the Lord and ask Him to heal and to redeem and to fix and to correct my heart in this. And I don't want to be alone. What would it look like for you to say to the Lord, Morally, I'm yours. What would you have change in me? Financially, I'm yours. Let my trust be in you. Ethically, I'm yours. Relationally, I'm yours. Spiritually, I'm yours. I submit to your word, to your instruction for my life. Even though I can't see how it could possibly be better than what I've, doing, what I've been doing. Obviously, we can't do this if we're not readers of the Word. But in the Word, the Lord does something astounding for us. He gives us something astounding. What is this Word that He's given us that is filled with all these commands? Let me read to you from a children's Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, she makes this statement, and I just think it is beautiful. No, the Bible isn't a list of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is, most of all, a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. The call on the life of every Christian is supremely relational. God's call in your life is to himself, that you would get to the end of your days and say the best part of this life was Him. His commands are relational. They're calling you to Him. They're meant to correct you when you're in error. They're meant to shape your thinking. They're meant to illuminate the path that He means for you to walk in this life, which is a path that is intimately close to Him. So what would it look like in your life for you to add obedience to your faith, even when you don't understand I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take about five minutes uh, to reflect on that question. What would it look like for you to add obedience to your faith this week? And be specific as you take this before the Lord in your journal or as you pray. Father, you, you give us this, this word that, that it, it just strikes me, that, that you give us these commands that seem so risky sometimes things that really kind of put us out on the edge of of uh, in a vulnerable place that if I trust you with my finances that I really have to trust you with my finances I have to work I have to do the things that you've called me to but I can't be a person who is looking at money as something that can answer where my heart longs to be satisfied that only you can do that. Father, we know that sometimes the commands that you give us are not meant to uh, prosper us uh, materially, but are oftentimes meant to humble us, uh, meant to, to lead us into a place where we are becoming more accustomed to and, and, and uh, willing to live sacrificially. Uh, Lord, for some of us, uh, any hint of, of uh, discomfort in life is something that we automatically assume is not your will for us. And yet, Lord, in your word, you call us to so many things that are sacrificial, even to lay down our lives, uh, to take up our cross and to follow you. If we want to be first, we should become last. We should become the servants of all. Lord, would you would you work in our hearts um, that we would participate with you in your word. Father, would you make us to be people who can see with clear, honest eyes places where we are not obeying your commands, for us, your word for us. Um, Would you help us to see the reasons? And Lord, would you draw us into this place of participation with you where we would delight in obeying you, even when we have to say honestly, we don't completely understand why. Father, let your character, your goodness, your holiness, your greatness be sufficient to set our anxieties at rest, knowing that when we're obeying you, we're following one who sees more than we see, whose ways are higher than our ways, who cares for us more deeply uh, than we could know to care for ourselves. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.